Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This week we are continuing the people of the book. This is part two and it should wrap it up. Um, in our last episode, we discussed literacy in the ancient world. In general, we discussed uh, reading communities. I set up the thesis um, and give you a brief conclusion of what we had discussed so far. And today we're going to continue talking about communal reading events. Um, if you remember, we... Uh, laid out this idea that in the ancient world, taking a literary work and reading it out loud in community was a very common practice. Uh, and so today we're going to begin by talking about Jewish life and reading, and then move into the New Testament community, and then talk about the distribution of manuscripts. And then we'll talk about some early Christian views on the scripture and then wrap up with the conclusion. And if you're wondering, we have got another week where I have not bought a new chair. And so if you hear squeaking... That's uh, the result of my negligence. And um, Christ the Cure is subscriber-supported. I have no idea where we'll be on the on the financial goal by the time this episode airs. Um, but if you have enjoyed Christ the Cure and you want to support uh, Christ the Cure as we press forward and keep producing content, uh, please consider becoming a Patreon uh, supporter at patreon.com forward slash Christ the Cure. So let's get right into it. So Jewish... Life and reading. Now, the, the context of Jewish life uh, found a heavy emphasis on communal reading of the law and the prophets, which is an idiom usually for the entire Old Testament. Now, even the, the more skeptical literature on literacy in the ancient world will state that the Jewish population had a higher literacy rate than their pagan neighbors, which is significant given what we talked about last time. Now, on top of remembering that the first Christians were thus these more literate Jews, this provides immediately, at the outset, a more literate Christian community than what we might think of. Um, we also find that Jewish worship is a point of reference that Christians would base their own worship upon, and this is significant because of how Jewish worship looked. Now, among scholarship, we find no serious objection to the reality that synagogues were often used as public community centers for public community reading events in the first century, uh, regardless of what text may be in view. It could be the Old Testament, it could be Homer. Um, but what is agreed upon is that there were places where communities could meet and have different events. In fact, we usually think of them as exclusively for Jewish worship, but that's not the case. They were community centers. In fact, the ancient writer Philo refers to the synagogue as a place of education and communal reading events sometimes centered around a sacred text and sometimes a non-sacred text, right? Uh, further, children along with adults were expected to learn and obey the readings that they heard at Jewish communal reading events. Synagogues are sometimes even likened to a school in Philo's literature. So you can see that not only were these... Um, places where communities could gather to hear literature, but children were involved, and there's a sense of education occurring at the synagogue. This sentiment is attested in various literature, and what we ultimately find is that in the first century, reading events ranged across the Roman world at large. And I mentioned this in the last episode, that this is geographically widespread and across the social spectrum. Some born slaves, some poor, um, some from poor families, and of course, obviously, some elites. And as we mentioned several times at this point, children and women were included in one way or another. Now, these reading events 
in literature are assumed to be the norm. And, quote, active engagement with literary work seems to be a base expectation of many authors with no indication that such activity would decrease or cease. And again, that is um, Brian Wright's Communal Reading in the Time of Jesus, a window into the early Christian reading practices. Again, a great book if you really want to go into the weeds on this. Now, the reading events were especially common in Jewish communities, and the thrust of the point can simply be that the Jews were already considered a people of the book, and Christians inherited this from their people because they were first Jews. Um, that coupled with the reality that the Greco-Roman world, by many accounts, focused upon memorization extremely well, along with uh, reciting works and shared literary works via either oral proclamation or literary readings on a day-by-day -day basis, is compelling to support the idea of a book-centric early Christianity. So if we connect these two points of both Jews and Gentiles having an appreciation of literature and communal reading events, then we should not be surprised if the Christian community ends up being a bookish people like the Jews, centered around communal readings who are prone to memorizing, reciting, and sharing, copying, and so on, uh, these literary works that we would call our uh, Bibles. In essence, even without the Bible in its finalized and complete form, which we talked about in the last episode, the early Christians were people of the book and dedicated themselves to its contents, uh, which I stressed in the last episode as well. So in the New Testament communities, not only will we find the reading culture presented in non-Christian sources, but we find it in the New Testament as well. Uh, for example, Jesus reads in the synagogue in Luke 4.16. Paul addresses Jews in the synagogue after letters are read in Acts 13.14-16. through 16, And we are told that Moses was read every Sabbath in Acts 15.21 and so forth. Uh, to quote uh, Brian Wright at length, he says, quote, There is no doubt that early Christianity was deeply invested in communal reading. And while the church elders had substantial discretion about how to do it, they had no discretion about whether to do it. Consider 1 Timothy 4.13, quote, Until I arrive, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting, and to teaching. End quote. This was true not just of Scripture from the Hebrew Bible, but also the apostolic letters and Gospels. The author of 1 Thessalonians gives the directive to the church, quote, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers in 527. The author of Colossians takes for granted the practice of communal readings when he states, quote, And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of of the Laodiceans, and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea in 416. I don't know why that passage always about Laodicea and the letter of Laodicea always uh, trips me up. So these Christians adopted um, what was typical for their Jewish communities, uh, which includes the book culture, reading communities, memorizing, reciting, copying, and other literary practices, but they were modified in different ways. Um, Wright finds that in over 300 passages, the New Testament includes 317 direct quotations from the Old Testament and 2,310 references when including allusions and verbal parallels. This shows a familiarity with the text of the Old Testament by New Testament authors who generally, apart from Luke and Paul, are not considered particularly educated. We hear that all the time. Uh, in terms of the life of Jesus, we find that Jesus alludes to written texts constantly and consistently. And in the book of Matthew, this happens with nearly every person Jesus meets. To quote Brian Wright again, quote, he references written text to scribes in 820, disciples in 822, and bystanders alike in 1918 through 19. He tells the Pharisees to go back and learn what scripture really means in 913, 
When scribes and Pharisees together ask for a physical sign, he points them back to the physical scriptures in 12, 38 through 42. When John the Baptist is questioning Jesus' ministry, Jesus tells John's disciples to go back and quote him scripture in 11, 4 through 6. The narrator has Jesus referencing scripture when discussing John's ministry with the crowd in 11, 10 and 11, 13. And he does this within places of communal readings like synagogues in 937 through 8 and in open meeting places as for the Sermon of the Mount in 712. He even sings certain written texts with his disciples in 2630, end quote. Um, and what's interesting in John's gospel in chapter 631, what we find is that the crowd are those who recalled and recited the scriptures opposed to the leaders or who we would call the religious elite. In the Gospel of Mark, we find the formula, quote, have you not read, end quote, several times, assuming a literary familiarity with the Old Testament text. Jesus states famously that those who are his true mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and puts it into practice in Luke 8, 21, which of course presupposes that they had access and knew God's word. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, in fact, we read the tendency for taking notes, compiling accounts, and so forth. Um... Off the cuff, whenever Luke is explaining his own pinning of the gospel, saying that he consulted other sources and that other people had written other sources in 1.1. Now, this type of expectation of reading and knowing the scripture continues throughout the entire New Testament. Famously in Acts, we find a man from Ethiopia who has uh, Philip overhear him reading from the Old Testament. From there, Philip and the man spend time discussing the text in a manner that seems to imply more than one text alongside the Isaiah text that we typically think of. Um, that is brought into focus. When it comes to the first conversion of Gentiles, Peter expects the God-fearing Gentiles to be well aware of the written law and already know the word of God sent to Israel. And you see that in uh, 1028 and 1036. Wright points out this term word in Acts is not personified as it is in John, like Logos, but instead always deals with the contents of Scripture. Now, in like manner, we find Paul, who listens to the customary readings in the synagogues in Acts 13, 14, and then he delivers an address while referencing scripture. Further, he states that the same scriptures that are read every Sabbath have been fulfilled in Christ in 13, 27. Now here, Paul, he, he recites the scriptures, and then eventually the Jews and Gentiles ask for Paul and Barnabas to return back to the synagogue for more teachings in 1343. And when they did return, we read, quote, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, end quote, and that's 1344, which contextually has reference to reading and the interpretation of scripture. In Paul's letters to various locations, some of them which are circular, such as Ephesians, we find an expectation that the letter would be read out loud. In fact, it was assumed that they would be read out loud. And it is further assumed that the gospel tradition would be in circulation and be recited and memorized and copied. It was the rapid and wide circulation of these texts via communal reading and copying that we find uh, this contributing factor in Christianity's rapid expansion um, at its very inception. To quote Brian Wright again, quote, regardless of the geographical locations, every New Testament author experienced and or assumed exposure to communal reading events. In fact, some Christian authors explicitly commanded them, 1 Timothy 4.13, Others noted the blessings of them in Revelation 1.3. Still others noted the pervasiveness of them among both Jews and Christians, Luke through Acts. Other similarities uh, with Jewish communities include strong literacy and high views of sacred text. We showed the distinctiveness of Christian reading culture by noting such things as the inclusion of new writings, 
Thus, communal readings events were customary even among the far-flung Christian communities, although the exact form may have differed from place to place and from time to time. End quote. 1 Timothy 4.13 expresses that Christians should devote themselves to the communal reading of the Scripture, while the last book of the New Testament, that is Revelation, promises blessings to those who read the words of the book out loud in 1.3. In the literature following the New Testament, we find similar statements. For example, the writing Second Clement, which is not written by Clement, states, quote, Therefore, brothers and sisters, following the God of truth, I am reading to you an exhortation to pay attention to what is written in order that you may save both yourselves and your reader, end quote. Thus, you have Second Clement stating that the reading and understanding of the contents of Scripture are crucial. The Christian writer Tertullian mentions the communal reading of Christian writers. He just simply says, quote, we meet to read the books of God, end quote, and that's in Apologies uh, 39.3, while also... Tertullian would complain that Praxius, one of the heretics he wrote against, and his followers utilized a few verses instead of the whole Old and New Testament to justify their heresy. And this is telling because he obviously knew the contents of the Old and New Testament in order to say that Praxius is picking and pooling. Justin Martyr refers to the communal readings of the apostolic memoirs, or the writings, right, and the writings of the prophets on the Lord's Day. He says, quote, "...on the day called Sunday..." All who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. And that's in First Apologies 167 of Justin Martyr's writings. So let's talk a little bit about the distribution of manuscripts, and we'll tie in why this matters as we get into it. Witherington, who we mentioned in the first episode, um, says that book culture was expensive. But he still says that the widespread idea of illiteracy in the Greco-Roman world or the ancient world was untenable um, because, quote, it is too seldom taken into account that the 27 books of the New Testament reflect a remarkable level of literacy and indeed of rhetorical skill, end quote. He further says, quote, early Christianity was not, by and large, a movement led by illiterate peasants of the socially deprived, end quote. And that's in um, again, if you don't remember, The World of the New Testament, Education in the Greco-Roman World by Witherington. It's a great introduction, book in the background of, uh, well, The World in the New Testament. Um, further, he agrees with most scholarship that, quote, given that the division between a speech and an orally performed text was more like a thin veil than a thick wall separating literary categories, it will come to no surprise that oral conventions shaped the so-called epistolary nature or literature of the New Testament more than the epistolary conventions do, and with good reasons. To restate that another way, because there wasn't this strong divide between oral proclamation and the written um, documents, we basically have these oral conventions, these practices being displayed in this literature rather than more of the written tactics, so to speak, in the written literature. Hopefully that made sense. Now, before formally going into the distribution of manuscripts, Matthew Solomon uh, can give us this reminder. Quote, we must remember that every single handwritten copy of the Bible was someone's Bible, whether personal or church copies. End quote. And that's from uh, Myths About Transmission and Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism. If you're into textual criticism, Myths and Mistakes is a must-have. Um but this is an important point because we tend to forget this, that these manuscripts, these handwritten copies of the Bible were the Bibles of that day. Um, so whenever we say 
uh, these people didn't have a Bible were, were kind of neglecting the fact that well, if they had a copy of Romans, that was their Bible. Um, so that's that's worth picking up. It depends on what how we're defining Bible. If we're defining Bible, again, as a pseudo-leather or leather-bound um, ESV, then yeah, obviously we can't anachronistically place that back onto the early church. But I don't know anyone who does. So from here, let's talk about manuscripts. Now, a manuscript is just a handwritten copy of a document. In this case, we're talking about, obviously, the New Testament in particular. So whenever we talk about the New Testament authors, and we say that they wrote a letter, we typically recognize that they were at least dictating a letter to an amanuensis, who is basically a secretary who would write what, say, Paul or Peter wanted them to write. In fact, the use of amanuensis is documented uh, both in the ancient world and in Paul's letters themselves. In fact, some people believe that it is the use of amanuensis uh, in Peter, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, that explains the differences between the two in terms of their structure and uh, their complexity. Regardless, uh, we're just going to talk about the author um, in a straightforward manner here. So when a work was completed, so um, the author would release a work when it was completed to be copied and then circulated to various literary networks. And you see this um, and uh, again, Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism. There's uh, an article by Mitchell called Myths About Autographs, and that's a good reference point there. To quote Mitchell again, quote, there's a possibility that further copies would be made under the control of the author or the authors. The practice of retaining a copy of a writing once it was published is sometimes referenced by Greco-Roman authors, though this is not always the case, end quote. It was common for a copy of a letter to be made uh, before being dispatched, which also could be indicative of what occurred with Paul's letters. So what you would have is, say that I wrote a letter, and before I sent it off to whoever was supposed to receive that letter, I would make another copy for my records, or even two copies, one for my records and one for another community. Now, copies of personal letters, which we could see as something like Timothy or Titus, may have lacked these additional copies. However, much evidence shows that it was rare that one would produce a single copy of a work and then circulate it. And that, again, is from Mitchell's uh, work, Myths About the Autographs and Myths and Mistakes. Further, a writing could not be transformed without the actions of a community knowing on account of the culture of community readings resulting in a familiarity with the text's contents and a guarding of the text's contents, which is important. We talked a little bit about that in the first episode of this little two-part series. And that's significant. Now, Metzger and Ehrman um, state, quote, by the early second century, i.e. AD 100, virtually all of the books that were eventually included in the New Testament had been produced, written, edited, and circulated, and multiple copies would have already been available in different locales. Within each location, text would have been copied and recopied as demand would have grown with the rise of additional churches and the conversion of literate persons to the new faith, some of whom would have wanted copies of apostolic writings for, their, for themselves or for their communities of faith, end quote. And that is the text of the New Testament, classic work on textual criticism by Metzger and Ehrman, and that's page 275. So in the first century, we see that various local churches were already collecting Paul's epistles, and you can see that even in Colossians 4.16, and they were making their own copies by AD 60. Uh, while the production of a manuscript would be somewhat slow, the circulation and distribution between locations was not necessarily a slow process because they were hand-delivered rather than relying on the Roman postal services. Uh, and you can see that in Encountering the Manuscripts by Comfort and page 41. And, you know, 
we, we understand that too. If you use USPS versus someone like UPS, you know the difference between relying on the, the state's postal service <laughs> and how slow it can be. That was a weird uh, sidebar. But it's while I'm waiting for, for a package. I'm waiting for a book. And USPS is dropping the ball. Anyway, the tremendous spread of Christianity is well documented, right? We have roughly 100 local churches in existence by the year 200. And, quote, it is not unreasonable to imagine that each church had one copy of the Pauline epistles by AD 80 to 100, as well as one copy of the four Gospels soon thereafter. And that, again, is um, Comfort's Encountering the Manuscripts, another great book on you know, ancient manuscripts and um, paleography and stuff like that. So um, hundreds of manuscripts were in circulation for church use early on. Um, Comfort places minimally 600 copies in existence by the end of the second century. But this does not account for the copies that were for private use, as it is based upon circulation within specific congregations. So put another way, that 600 copy estimation is likely low because there would have been additional copies for private use, and these 600 copies are only by counting the congregations that we know of. In fact, it's even more difficult to make estimations because of the persecution which included the book-burning parties that would soon come after Christianity's uh, founding. So basically, that estimation is likely low, but is still significantly high. Um, so the takeaway from this particular section, um, that is the, the distribution of manuscripts, because you're like, what does this have to do with anything? But it really adds to what we're talking about, the book culture of the ancient world and this idea that Christians were people of the book and desired their own copies of the documents so that they could have access to the contents of those books. The idea that they uh, were just concerned about behavior and not the contents of the Old Testament or the New Testament is, is a bizarre idea. The amount of manuscripts that will be produced in subsequent years would further demonstrate this reality as the New Testament still has, as Daniel Wallace says, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to documents of antiquity. So now let's talk about um, early Christian conceptions of the Holy Scriptures, which really just furthers the thesis that Christians were people of the book. They relied heavily on the contents of the Bible, regardless of whether or not they had their own ESV study Bible or their leather-bound Reformation study Bible or the new LSB, right? Um, they cared about the contents of the Bible, and they were people of the book in accordance with their historical and cultural context. And so what we're going to do here is briefly sample, and that's all it is, sampling how some early Christians spoke about the scriptures um, in addition to their high view of scripture, which we'll find that really um, early Christians would speak contrary to what we would find in many progressive circles today in regards to the nature of scripture and the high view of scripture. So let's begin with Clement of Rome. Now, Clement of Rome is typically considered a disciple of the Apostle Paul. This is debated, so it's not set in stone. Uh, you need to go dig into the weeds if you want to figure that out. But he wrote a letter that's typically called First Clement Today. And this is a letter to the Roman church, and it's typically dated to around the early 60s or as late as AD 97. You know, there's ranging how they would date this. But he states, quote, you have searched the scriptures, which are true, which were given by the Holy Spirit, 117. Now, what this tells us is that there is a concept of inspiration, and this concept of inspiration is being applied to the letter of Paul, known as, of course, 1 Corinthians. And he continues by saying, quote, take up the epistle of the blessed Paul of the apostle, 
What did he first write to you in the beginning of the gospel? Truly, he wrote to you in the Spirit in 118. And so we find that there's a conception of being led by the Holy Spirit, that is inspiration, and Clement appeals to the written text to move Christians into action. It's a consistent theme, really. It's kind of strange that we're even having to defend it. Uh, Justin Martyr, who I quoted earlier, would write that the Scripture demands to, quote, be believed for its own nobility and for the confidence due to him who sends it. Now the word of truth is sent from God for being sent with authority. And that's in uh, Justin Martyr's Fragments 1, uh, 2, 94. So again, the, the Scriptures, we can have contents in it, and we should um, be believing in the Scriptures because of the one who sends the Scriptures. Again, another idea of inspiration being attributed to the Scripture. Clement of Alexandria would state that the Scriptures are the voice of God, um, or rather, that's where the voice of God is heard. He states, quote, He, then, who of himself believes the Scripture and the voice of the Lord, which by the Lord acts to the benefit of men, is rightly regarded as faithful. Certainly, we use it as the criterion in the discovery of things. We are, by the voice of the Lord, trained up in the knowledge of truth. And that's in his work, his famous work, Stromata 716. So Clement of Alexandria states that not only is Scripture the Word of God inspired, but that it is the means by which the Christians discover and are trained up in knowledge and truth. Now, Irenaeus calls the Bible, quote, the ground and pillar of our faith, end quote, and that's in Against Heresies 3.1.1. And he points to Jesus as the example who proved to the disciples all things from the Scripture. And Greg Allison, in his historical theology, summarizes Irenaeus by saying, quote, truth or orthodox doctrine is not found by changing the meaning of words of Scripture, for so people subvert all true teaching, but in consideration of what perfectly belongs to and becomes the sovereign God and establishing each one of the points demonstrated in the scriptures, again, from similar scriptures. Heresy, any belief that is to be rejected by the church, is an error precisely because it, quote, lacks the authority of scripture, end quote, and it does, quote, violate the scriptures, oppresses the scriptures, diminishes the scriptures, end quote. Still heretics um, attempt to establish their erroneous views from scripture, because both the church and heretical groups appeal to scripture in support of the doctrines, a standoff was in the making, end quote. Um, Clement, Hippolytus, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and most every writer of the early church quotes and appeals to the Old Testament and the New Testament continually for their doctrine and practice. Uh, they knew their practice, they knew their correct behavior, how to imitate Christ, because they first sought out who Christ was in accordance with the scriptures. Now, the literature written by Christians that we have from the New Testament all the way through the first several centuries of the church are heavily saturated with Scripture and a reference to them, indicating their importance to typical or normative Christianity. So with all that said, our conclusion is simple. While recognizing that Christians likely didn't have access to their own personal physical copy of the complete Bible, Christians certainly had access to the contents of scriptures and relied heavily upon them for faith, life, and practice while devoting themselves to the instructions of the book. To limit book culture to the personal owning of a particular complete Bible or a manuscript or a modern book is to be anachronistic. Further, to suggest that Christians were uninterested or ignorant of the contents of scripture is nonsensical in light of the historical data. The Christians of the early church clearly were reliant upon the contents of Scripture to understand, explain, and teach the gospel from the Old Testament and whatever access they had to the New Testament documents, which were soon collected and circulated in the early church. It's also interesting that 
the Muslims, when they show up on the scene in the 8th century, or is it the 9th century, uh, whenever they show up, they describe the Jews and Christians as people of the book. So aside from even writings by Christians, we have an attestation from those who are outside of the church calling Christians people of the book and giving the, the literary context of the Greco-Roman world and everything that we discussed in part one and part two, there, there is no reason to think that Christians were illiterate or uninterested in the contents of scripture. In fact, not only did they find them necessary to go gather together to hear the scriptures read, as Justin Martin Tertullian stated, but they found them necessary to understand how to be like Christ and to have access to Christ and to know salvation and to know God the Father. So hopefully this episode um, was interesting to some degree or another. I know to get to the conclusion, we kind of went a bunch of different routes. Hopefully you see the puzzle I was trying to put together by, by pulling in these different pieces. There's a lot of other areas that we could have touched on. Um, but I think that, you know, what, what is this, 30, 30 minutes here and 45 minutes in the episode? I think that's significant for um, this particular topic. I think it's more than thorough or um, sufficient enough, rather. So um, that's that. And I believe our next episode will be our Reformation Day special. Let me just double check that real quick for y'all. Um Yes, our next episode will be the Reformation Day special. Um, it was a little bit of a shame to not do uh, Beyond Luther again. I know everyone enjoyed Beyond Luther, that series. If you haven't listened to it, go check it out. You can look up Beyond Luther on the website. Um, I enjoy that series. I had plans for it. I, I just really couldn't get around to the preparation for it um, because of everything else going on. So we're going to do a single Reformation Day special that will be focused on indulgences, which hopefully you'll find enlightening, interesting, and um, give you your fill of Reformation content before we move on into November. So that said, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And thank you again for your support of Christ of the Cure. Um, if you love the show, leave a review on iTunes. If you um, want to support Christ of the Cure, consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com or patron at patreon.com forward slash crisis the cure. Uh, December is around the corner. Um, if you are not aware, the episodes on Christmas and paganism are no longer available to the public. If you're a Patreon, why do I keep saying that? It's patron. If you are a patron, you have access to all of those season one episodes that we had before the relaunch. So you have access to those episodes. But if you're not a patron and you want the contents of my episodes on Christmas and paganism, Easter and paganism, Old Testament feasts, and uh, Easter, or did I say Easter, and a biblical case for celebrating Christmas, which is the episode remaining. It's episode 175. You can find that one on the feed. Um, but if you want that content, you can go pick up my book, Holidays in the Feast by Nicholas Campbell. And I um, try to make it short, sweet, to the point. Um, so short and sweet that I forgot a concluding chapter. What are you going to do? And if you enjoy that book and you find it helpful, um, share it with your Family and friends leave a review on Amazon, and that's enough promotion. It's exhausting to, to do that kind of thing. So anyway, have a great weekend, and God bless you. Where
justice and mercy.